The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Since Congress says I can have detectives and I, they give me money to hire them, why can't I have a small force for my own department? Not for the rest of the executive branch, just for DOJ's purposes. So he basically reorganizes. He, he grabs, there were some peonage investigators, you know, that early civil rights crime. There were some um, land fraud investigators. You know, basically they, they kind of went by different titles sometimes, you know, investigator. Uh, some of them were called um, examiners and they were basically the accountants. You know, they'd look for fraud in the the U.S. courts and the books of the different uh, circuit courts and things like that. And um, some of the, there were some early banking bills they might check, you know, bank um, acts that they, they were enforcing as well. But so he took basically the detectives that were already in the department and then hired eight or nine of those former Secret Service detectives permanently as special agents of the department. So as of July 1st, he basically had 34 special agents. I'm David Chris, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, June 23rd, 2021. Today's podcast is another installment in our ongoing series of historical inquiries with U.S. and Five Eyes intelligence agencies. Earlier episodes have featured CIA, NSA, and GCHQ, the British SIGINT element. Today, it's the FBI, featuring FBI historian John Fox. John and I take a whirlwind tour of the Bureau from its founding, through the era of prohibition and gangsters, World War II, the Cold War, abuses revealed in the 1970s, 9-11, and right up to the present, focusing on the use of wiretap evidence and intelligence. We move fast, but even so, today's episode is the first of two parts. Stay tuned for part two, coming soon. It's the Lawfare Podcast, June 23rd, the FBI. John, welcome to the podcast. I've given you a one-sentence introduction, but please tell our listeners about yourself, your career at the Bureau, and your interest in history. Thanks, David. You know, it's funny because I ended up in history as a a bit of a fluke in that um, I was really pursuing political science. But I got married and um, was finishing up my master's at Boston College and heading up to, well, my wife was uh, going to New Hampshire, so I went with her. And they didn't have a doctorate in poli-sci, so I went into history and, you know, somewhere in the middle of my um, studies there, one of my professors said, you know, you don't seem too interested in that dissertation topic. I've got a bunch of old FBI files. Maybe you'd like to, to take a look. And so, um, you know, Dr. Doug Wheeler got me going on the FBI and intelligence history. It was right when Venona was being declassified. I was writing on Martha Dodd Stern, who was a character, not a very effective spy, but but certainly an interesting study. And I needed a real job, and the Bureau was hiring for FOIA processors. Fabulous. So you're kind of an accidental historian. And uh, even if a very successful one. And um, the reference to Venona, obviously, for those of you who've been following along, uh, we had a prior episode on the very, very uh, productive and successful SIGINT collection program uh, with uh, Dave Hatch, the NSA historian on Project Venona. So you came into the Bureau and you started on FOIA. Is that what you just said? So you were looking at classified files that were being reviewed? Exactly. Well, I, I was a disclosure analyst, so I was basically the one going through and deciding what can or can't be put in based on the the different exemptions that are allowed, and then getting um, you know those things out to the public. And 
you know, I, I actually liked the job quite a bit, but, you know, six months into my, my tenure there, the public affairs office put out a note that they were going to hire a historian again. So I kind of knocked on the door and introduced myself. And although <laughs> they wanted someone who was finished their doctorate at that point, they said, you know, why don't you come over and you can, um, you know, work with the historian when they come on and uh, we'll see how it goes. And I, I think the unit chief liked me, so she didn't uh, hire anybody at that point. And I finished up the dissertation, defended it. And in 2003, they appointed me a historian. So I've kind of been doing the job since late, 1999, but um, officially I've only been here 18 years as historian. I see. So kind of a newbie. And had they had a historian, it sounded like you were suggesting they'd had a historian previously and then there was a gap or something or a vacancy. We did, yes. Sue Rosenfeld, uh, Sue Falb at the time, uh, was our historian from, I believe, 1984 to 92. Mm -hmm. And when she left uh, the job, they didn't hire a new one at the time. Huh. And so it was a couple of years, you know, seven years later that they were thinking maybe they, they need one again. So. <laughs> okay. Better late than ever. And then, so, well, all right. So you rolled in there in 99 and then in 2003 with your official PhD in hand, you were named. And so you've been doing that since then. I mean, tell us yep. a little bit about like, you know, what does the job really entail and, and why is it important to the Bureau? Well, yeah, you know, as a historian, it's great because you, you're doing something different really every day. You know, you get your usuals. Obviously, you have to know a little bit about J. Edgar Hoover. You certainly have to know something about our civil rights investigations and some of the big spy cases. And if you don't know who John Dillinger is, you're not in the right place. So, yeah, there, there are those kind of usual things. But, you know, the FBI's jurisdiction is so broad that... You know, one day you might be dealing with uh, sports and, and some issue related to that. Another day it's, you know, technology or, you know, intelligence. Of course, intelligence history is what got me into this. So, yeah. you know, the counterintelligence side of the Bureau's mission has really been my fascination. Kind of, I'm a bit weaker on the organized crime side, hmm. but uh, I've certainly picked up a fair bit on the, the gangsters and, and some of the 1930s stuff going on. So yeah. really, it's something different every day. It's it's a public affairs position, so a lot of elements of public history, uh, working with museums, working with authors, worked on a couple of um, uh, movies that that we've uh, commented on, or, or you know, helped with to some extent or another. No way, really. So you're you're a Hollywood guy. I mean, you go out and be like a script consultant, or that's well, of thing, or... it's it's not you know more like we will um you know we'll offer suggestions on how it might be more accurate. <laughs> um, so you can tell uh -huh. basically the prop guys are happy to listen to you, but the um, the screenwriters have their story to tell. So. They may or may not uh, consider it. Yeah. Okay. So did you consult on the Americans, you know, with Kerry Russell? I just want to know, because that had a lot of FBI details, including like the mail delivery robot and that sort of thing. You know what? I <laughs> I did get some information on the mail delivery robot, <laughs> I believe, for them. Fabulous. And, uh, you know, I, I may have also offered just... Oh, gosh, we might have offered some capsule summaries of some old espionage oh, cases that they terrific. might crib off of or something. I, it's been too long at this point, yeah. but um, not not significantly. I, you know, I worked on uh, ghost stories when I was in. So when I was watching that show, I'm like, maybe <laughs> maybe they're going to have a dashing young man from the uh, DOJ side of the street. <laughs> Turned out, no. Um, I, I was told Brad Pitt was available to play me, but it didn't work out, I guess. Yes, well. <laughs> so, okay. So, but you're doing a lot of um, public relations and public engagement, whether whether in the movies or in giving talks. And I mean, if well, or or you know, simply someone's trying to find out about their their great grandfather or grandmother, and and um, they had something to do in the bureau or academics are, you know, looking for help or middle schoolers yeah. are doing their history day projects and uh, uh, have to interview someone. So well, that's cool. a little bit of everything. Yeah. So that means though, that you do have some interactions with the general public. And so I have to ask you, because I ask every, every historian, <laughs> what is, <laughs> what's the weirdest thing that you've experienced that you feel comfortable disclosing uh, as FBI historian? <laughs> Dave Hatch, I'll just tell you, is currently on the leaderboard uh, because he told me he gets calls from folks asking him to use NSA technology to help locate buried treasure and offering to split the take with him. So do you have anything strange from the uh, historical records of the federal BI? Uh, and by the way, five bucks to uh, 
or at least uh, props to anyone who can identify the movie reference for federal BI. Anything, anything <laughs> you can disclose there? Well, you know, it's, I, I think probably my, my favorite one was I did get a call one afternoon from an agent in, in one of our Midwest offices. And he said something along the lines of, we, we've just discovered this car that's kind of, um, it, it, you know, obviously it was lost in the swamp, um, you know, went off the road or something, you know, it looks like it, you know, might've gone off the road, but, you know, wasn't found. looks like it could have been from the late 1970s and, and there's a body in it. What was Jimmy Hoffa? It's not Hoffa, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, great minds think alike. Okay. <laughs> and so I take it it was not Hoffa. No, no, it wasn't the, no. the, um, oh, at this point, I forget, you know, sounded, you know, it was like one of those um, 1970s green exercise suits. I don't know if it was, you know, kind of, a you know, crushed velour. It was, you know, just kind of that slicker, uh, you know, nylon, but. Uh, yeah, that's great. All right. So people feel free to vote on the contest between Dave Hatchett. Oh, I like Dave. I'd rather hunt for buried treasure. That's, uh, he's got my vote. All right. All right. All right. So, so this podcast is focused really on FBI use of wiretap evidence and signals intelligence in both, you know, criminal and counterintelligence cases. So we're going to take kind of a pretty quick and chronological approach. Although folks in the audience, if you hear a reference to something and you think it deserves a deeper dive, Feel free to nominate a topic for a follow-up podcast, and we'll try to cajole John into a return engagement. So let's maybe start with just the basic statistics around the founding of the Bureau. When did it come into existence, and why did it come into existence, John? Sure. Uh, Yeah, the Bureau basically came into existence pretty much on the first day of the new fiscal year of 1908, so July 1st at the time. At the time, Congress had just passed a, you know, every year they passed something called the Sundry Civil Appropriations Act, and it basically was a, you know, a bunch of individual, you know, appropriations measures for for different departments and parts of the department. And one of them that they had been giving for years was a appropriation for the detection and prosecution of crime. And they would give Department of Justice X amount of dollars every year since, oh gosh, 1872 in this bill. Mm -hmm. And during the spring, it had become an issue with the Appropriations Committee that the U.S. Secret Service, which was part of the Treasury Department, was basically providing detectives for the rest of the government on an ad hoc basis. And Congress said that if there's going to be an executive or national police force. It should be legislatively created. It shouldn't be, you know, basically, um, you know, just done by fiat by Teddy Roosevelt. (laughs) And, you know, part of this seemed to, to be a a distrust to John Wilkie, who was the chief at the time. Um, You know, certainly the, the animus seemed to be aimed at Wilkie and, and the process had kind of developed under him in his tenure as head of the Secret Service. But long story short, you know, Congress passed a rider in this um, in this sundry bill saying that basically Secret Service detectives can't be loaned out to other executive agencies. Yeah. And so all of a sudden the, the AG's in a bind because, you know, during the hearings they they told Charles Bonaparte that, hey, you know, we know you need detectives. That's why we give you money every year for them. And, you know, Bonaparte was kind of looking at this and saying, well, I just lost a bunch of the guys that we've been using. So since Congress says I can have detectives and I, they give me money to hire them. Why can't I have a small force for my own department? Not for the rest of the executive branch, just for DOJ's purposes. So he basically reorganizes. He, he grabs, there were some peonage investigators, you know, that early civil rights crime, there were some, um, Land fraud investigators, you know, basically they they kind of went by different titles sometimes, you know, investigator. Yeah. Uh, some of them were called um, examiners, and they were basically the accountants. You know, they'd look for fraud in the, the U.S. courts and the books of the different uh, circuit courts and things like that. And um, some of the – there were some early banking bills they might check, you know, bank um, acts that they, they were enforcing as well. But – so he took basically the detectives that were already in the department and then hired eight or nine of those former Secret Service detectives permanently as special agents of the department. So 
as of July 1st, he basically had 34 special agents, you know, about eight or nine of them were actually examiners, but the the terms were kind of interchangeable to some extent. And John, there are terrific photos on your website of early classes of what became FBI agents, like doing calisthenics in white t-shirts and shorts on the roof of the Justice Department building. True, but that's that's a 1930s picture. So okay, we're, so that's we're jumping ahead of the game here. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. <laughs> that's all right. It, you had so you had like 35 to start, but by the time like Hoover took over in the early 20s, 24, I guess, there were probably up to like 400 and something, 450 in that ballpark. Yeah, it was something like that. Right. And, you know, kind of grew slowly and then exploded in World War, you know, when World War II broke out in Europe. Yeah. uh, Because in those early days, I mean, right, there's only about six or seven federal crimes. I mean, it's not like it is today. So that. Yeah, we kind of count about two dozen, you know, you had had to span because there were some national security matters. You had some white collar, you know, if it was a violent crime on government property, DOJ had to investigate. Yeah. So, you know, you kind of covered it, but the details weren't there. I, I kind of used the, you know, we had a comic book uh, for our federal criminal code back then. And, and of course, now we have, what, several shelves on our yeah. law school library. <laughs> oh, it goes on and on. There are Twitter accounts devoted to, like, you know, the weird federal crime of the day. So in the post-World War One era, now, you're really, you are looking at bootleggers at, on the criminal side a lot. Yep. and you guys are using at that time wiretap evidence and there's you know this being lawfare i can't help yep. but do a little <laughs> bit of law sorry but so the 4th amendment you know you know, back in those olden days really isn't much of a a, a factor um, and i'm take as a as a resident of the seattle area i take a certain delight in the decision of the supreme court in the olmstead case <laughs> and and Understandably so. You know, of course, you know, we've been using wiretaps. The earliest one I've found so far referenced is 1910. Okay. Um, and it was in uh, a bucket shop case. A bucket shop was a um, kind of fraudulent uh, stock or betting operation that uh, you know, basically they were getting the the feeds of, of the, um, the stock prices or the racing results and they would delay on um, – you know, reporting them to, to the people who are in the betting parlors and so forth and things like that. So apparently uh, we did use them in that. So there's a little bit of it there. There's a little bit through the teens, but you know, it's under prohibition that wiretaps really start to kind of come of age for federal law enforcement. And that wasn't mostly the Bureau of Investigation, which is what we were called. That was the Bureau of Prohibition, which was part of Treasury. Right. And so, yeah, Olmstead was a, um, a former Seattle uh, police officer who turned to bootlegging <laughs> and was running uh, apparently a fairly successful operation until he was arrested and, and charged based in part on evidence obtained by a wiretap. Yeah, the court, I took a look at the uh, Supreme Court's opinion again this morning. I probably read it 10 times, but uh, (laughs) the court calls it, quote, a conspiracy of amazing magnitude to import, possess, and sell liquor unlawfully. I think it involved millions of dollars, like two million. So, you know, big. <laughs> Which wasn't bad money in those days. Yeah, back in those days. And they were running it in and out of British Columbia and Seattle. Yep. And as you say, and there was a lot of that going on, you know, from Canada to, to the Pacific Northwest. Absolutely. I see. Yeah, actually, I think it's depicted in that uh, in the Untouchables movie, a little bit of uh, northern border uh, stuff going on. Yep. And um, so the court, just for the legal nerds in the audience, the court says, hey, this is a wiretap in which the uh, prohibition agents are on with their alligator clips on the wires outside the defendant's home, but listening to him talking on the telephone from within. And because they don't actually make physical entry into the home, they're not trespassing on his private property. The court says basically no Fourth Amendment event has occurred because if it isn't a trespass, it isn't a search or seizure. So this opens up, you know, (laughs) quite a range, constitutionally speaking. And you, I think, in the Bureau put that to good use in Olmstead itself and maybe in some other cases. Well, actually, again, it was the, um, it was the prohibition agents tapping Olmstead, although obviously it was U S attorneys prosecuting them based on, on the evidence, but you know, the bureau policy actually, at least, you know, in we're talking now the late twenties when Olmstead is, is decided Hoover took over in, in 1924 
And, um, you know, the policy, at least in the, the Bureau manual, was that any employee engaging in wiretapping will be dismissed from the service of the Bureau. No way. I didn't know that. Really? That's While it cool. may not be illegal, I think it is unethical and it is not permitted under the regulations by the Attorney General. So DOJ said no. <laughs> He's a veritable Henry Stimson. I mean, gentlemen do not read each other's mail. <laughs> Well, and as complicated as that one is, but yeah. Yeah, right. Exactly. Right. No, no, of course. And like Black Chamber going on and everything. Uh, Absolutely. On the on the Japanese Diplo traffic. So, so, so the Bureau wasn't wiretapping at that point. I, I got to confess, John, learned something every day. I thought I knew a lot, but I, uh, yet again. Or, or if it was, they weren't reporting it to headquarters. So oh, that's... wait. That scenario sounds possibly more plausible, but all right. Okay. But, but officially, it's not a thing. Officially, it was not, you know, not a Bureau technique at that time. You know, it had been earlier. Yeah. And then, um, I, well, oh gosh, was Frank Murphy the AG at the time? Yeah. I think it might have been. I think Frank Murphy said no wiretapping. Right. So various AGs, you know, various times, like Homer Cummings was reasonably successful, I think, but others had more trouble reining in the FBI. Can you imagine that? The FBI being independent to some degree of the attorney general? I, I, it seems unthinkable, really, John, doesn't it? Well, I, we we can get into that, I guess. But um, you know, it, it gets it depends on the AG and it depends on you know the time because you know, in a sense, the the independence that you think of Hoover and the FBI in in later years is not the bureau necessarily in the earlier of years. That, okay, fair in quite enough. the same way. You know, there there's some nuance there. I'll put it that way. And that's fair. I'm mostly just trying to. Uh you know, bust your shops a little bit for the sheer joy of it. And I apologize. Well, I get it. And, uh, you know, I, I, I kind of have my disputes here with some of Ethan Theo Harris's work, although, you know, it's well worth reading. Uh, you know, <laughs> certainly did Yeoman's work when it was tough and there weren't a lot of records. All right. So you've got a constitutional open field after Olmstead in 28, but you've got a yep. bureau internal policy. And then in 34, you have Congress stepping in with legislation, the Communications Act. Well, actually, if we we should jump back a slight bit. Yeah, because what happens is in 1929, Congress legislatively transfers the Bureau of Prohibition to the Department of Justice. And so when it's in there in fiscal year 1930, all of a sudden, I'd have to check the dates, but I think we're under a new attorney general and all of a sudden he's confronted with the problem that I've got two investigative bureaus that have different policies (laughs) and we can't have that. Therefore I will allow wiretapping since the Supreme court has said it's okay. Yep. And so the bureau had to change its policy. (laughs) Wow. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. So, you know, A, today I've been told <clears throat> that different law enforcement agencies might have different policies on the same issues. And, and B, I think the Bureau would never change its policy, but would uh, maybe other people would change theirs. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stick to being a 20th century historian. So I'm going to comment on 20th century. 20th matters, century only. All right. And not only, but for the most part. <laughs> so the Bureau then removes its internal prohibition, because actually that's what I had thought was that they yep. had a sense of doing so it, it removes it yeah. and 
really doesn't, you know, use it a lot. You know, they, they'll do consensual wiretapping mm-hmm. in kidnapping cases. Yep. And of course they get, you know, the, the federal kidnapping act is passed in what 32. So, okay. you know, they'll do it in those cases and it's consensual. So we're, we're not talking trespass or anything like that. Right. And this would be, in other words, just for people who don't like haven't seen it on TV or whatever. It's like, you know, in the home of the victim's parents or something when the ransom call comes in and it's a exactly, yeah. you know, and, and listening in on another line or, you know, working with the phone company to to have a trunk line sort of thing. Yep. And then 34, of course, you were raising the, the Federal Communications Act gets passed and yeah. creates a whole new issue. And that says no person shall wiretap and disclose the fruits thereof. And it leads to a couple of decisions of the Supreme Court in Nardone. Yep. Both of which also, I think, involve rum runners or bootleggers, although it's yes. post-prohibition, but there are still restrictions on you know, liquor uh, commerce. And apparently these fellows were <clears throat> not following those rules, at least not scrupulously. Well, and, and Nardone, of course, focuses on the application of the Federal Communications Act vis-a-vis yep. wiretaps now. And tell us, uh, I mean, so there's there's two decisions. The first one saying no person means no person. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, no exemption for government agents. Right. And then the second one, of course, says no forbidden fruit. So yeah. you can't use it if you got it. And so this sounds bad in terms of those who wish to procure criminal convictions and otherwise engage in wiretapping, including possibly for national security, foreign intelligence purposes, which is, you know, as we get into the mid to late 30s, this is becoming kind of a focus again. Well, although the the courts, of course, are not going to try and even touch on the relationship Mm -hmm. to national security for for many more years. Yeah. So so they're really thinking of this just in a kind of criminal way. Because what, what the, the Department of Justice and the White House end up doing, you know, along with, with Hoover's concurrence, is basically saying, all right, well, the act says that you can't receive mm-hmm. and divulge. Right. So, you know, if, if we just keep it internally and use it basically for what we call intelligence purposes, uh-huh. it's not really divulging. So we're I not see. violating the act because Congress was not trying to stop us from, you know, basically investigating foreign agents and things like that. No, certainly not. So when it says receive and divulge, we'll just receive. I, I know. And not I know. divulge. <laughs> well, then, and, you know, Roosevelt wasn't going back to Congress to get no, it fixed, which exactly. is what he should have done. Yeah. I think they thought they might lose in Congress. Well, it's a tough one because, you know, Hoover... For instance, in in the late 30s, after, you know, actually after the first Nardone and after the second Nardone, Mm -hmm. testifies to Congress, we use wiretaps. He he said this publicly, you know, in, gosh, I'm I'm not sure about 38, but definitely 39 and 40, Mm -hmm. that we use wiretaps when we fear for the life of a kidnapped victim. Yeah. And in national security matters, basically. And so Congress knew this. Right, right. <laughs> and and so it kind of comes down to, yeah, Congress would bat around the idea of having uh, some kind of wiretap law. And, of course, you know, eventually we'll get Title III and FISA. But, yep. you know, they, they bat it around and it would never go anywhere legislatively. So they're just kind of letting this all go on a wink and a nod. I mean, and, and we see this. I know you and I'm not asking you to comment on anything in, in more recent memory, but th- this situation in which, you know, there's an understanding or interpretation or a ruling or statute or judicial order that's issued. And then there's a, a sort of a statement about how it's going to be interpreted and implied. And then ultimately it ends up, nobody quite can get the clarity of, of insight as to whether we're going to expressly permit it or expressly forbid this other application and we sort sure. of end up in this kind of twilight zone of like who it's, you know, who's well, got the burden of actually making a clear rule. And, and, you know, we have to keep in mind too, that, you know, kind of our current understanding and, and even the, the leading edges of debate about the extent of the inherent authority of the president to conduct national security matters yeah. was in a very different state back then. And so certainly in the idea of, you know, you know, signals intelligence and, and communications intelligence, in, in some ways, you know, the, the executive branch simply took the Communications Act as not really touching on those matters. Right. right. Okay. So tell us about the foreign intelligence 
wiretapping SIGINT collection that's going on, you know, during this period in the run up to World War II? Well, gosh, you know, really the, the SIGINT collection, of course, really was, you know, they were calling it communications intelligence in the day. Yeah. You know, is, is you know, pretty much an Army-Navy matter. You know, the, the FBI is not involved at least up until the outbreak of World War II. And so really isn't involved in that at all. In fact, you know, you look at kind of the first big public spy case, Rumrick. Gunter Rumrick was a, a German agent operating in New York uh, who gets arrested in, in um, early 1938. The tip comes from MI5 based on their interception of, you know, basically um, letters going into a German mail drop in Scotland. And so they basically decode the, the letters, realize that the spy is contemplating putting an army uh, U.S. Army officer at risk, uh, physically at risk, because his idea is basically to to convince the guy to to bring the East Coast defense plans to him and um, knock him on the head and and run away <laughs> with the plans. Uh-huh. And so they tell the Army via the State Department, and the Army and State Department end up having Rumrick arrested. You know, the, I think they bring in the New York police to do it. Then they hand it to the FBI and say, hey, we found aspiring. Figure out what you can about it. So, you know, it becomes a bit of a mess. Thanks a lot, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, it, you know, this is really, you know, it's kind of the, the first big realization by the Bureau that, hey, we have to start, you know, being better at counterespionage. Uh, you know, this isn't working the way we've been going and things are changing. I don't know the answer to this, but is the Rumrick case or experiences of that sort behind I think in 39, Roosevelt, you know, issues a memorandum, basically, I think particularly focused on the New York police, but more generally to local law enforcement that says, please advise the FBI if you learn about sabotage or espionage or that sort of thing. Well, I'm, I'm sure he had in mind NYPD um, yeah. you know, directly, but no, it was pretty much all. And in fact, it was yeah. even, um, you know, there, there had been a message to the government agencies as well. I see. Earlier you know, basically of the, on the same theme, you know, but it was, uh, you know, there was some pushback because there were other agencies who thought maybe they should be involved in some of this as well, but Rumrick, not directly, rather it's kind of a more general issue because in the late thirties, they started to see, you know, much more Japanese espionage. Uh, they started to, you know, of course the Rumrick spy ring was one, but there were other evidences that there could be German espionage and, of course, war was was fast approaching on the continent, so yeah. they they were very much realizing, hey, we're approaching a situation where we were like with World War One, mm-hmm. where where we're going to be neutral, and we don't want to be targeted by you know foreign intelligence services like we had been then, and so we've got to pay more attention to this, and so you get. You know, the the directives from some Roosevelt basically, you know, telling the locals, uh, state and local police, hey, uh, this is a federal matter. If you you see signs of, you know, sabotage and, and espionage, give them to the Bureau. Yeah. And you have the Bureau and the Army and the Navy starting to talk about what to do. You've got obviously the Army and the Navy ramping up their cryptographic capabilities. Uh, mm-hmm. The Bureau lab now because of its among other things, experience in the Rumrick case and realizing that some of this had come from coded messages is, you know, snapping up code books and commercial crypto equipment so they can start to learn, you know, what's going on with all this. Uh, you've got the U.S. Coast Guard, of course, who has still kept a, a fairly robust uh, cryptographic capability with uh, Elizabeth Friedman and her crew. Mm-hmm. And and so all these actors are kind of beginning to all focus on the same kinds of things. And then, of course, you know, by 1940, the Bureau is beginning to send undercover agents to South and Central America right. to, you know, cover some blind spots that, that the U.S. had. We're starting to interact a lot more with uh, British intelligence because, um, of course, Stevenson starts setting up the BSC. Intrepid. Well, <laughs> he wasn't called intrepid. So people say. You know, yeah. Okay, yes. Right. right. Exactly. Uh, yeah. So all those those issues, and and eventually, of course, you know, we also have um, you know Donovan and the OSS coming into the game. And you guys get you at the bureau more or less in the early days there at least get 
Western Hemisphere. Is that right. right. Yeah. And and so you know, beginning to work with um, you know British uh, censorship down in um, Bermuda, you know, they would intercept mail going to Germany and and things like that. Uh, we very quickly realized that, of course, there are you know German radio networks operating in the Western Hemisphere, and of course, you've got all sorts of folks are, are intercepting those. The FCC is involved in, you know, you end up having some of your battles between uh, Hoover and Lawrence Fly, who's the, the chair over there. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've got, you know, the, the, all the different battles over, you know, who should be doing what, when. Yeah. If I could just, I just want to plug a piece of my own work that very few people read and, and understandably so, but a long paper I did on the new SIGINT annex, which is the annex to the DOD manual for signals intelligence has a long historical section about the relatively vicious interagency infighting that characterizes some of this period, including unbelievable fights between the army and the navy that like are oh, resolved. Yeah. Like, okay, you guys do the even number days of the week, and we'll do the odd well, number and, and days. It, it just you know mind boggles in that that regard. And and the Brits, <laughs> of course, are are in there, both kind of stirring the pot a little bit, but um, yep. not always. Uh, purposefully, but also trying to get the U.S. to, to straighten some of it out so that they can work with them. <laughs> and, and so you've got everybody kind of doing all this. And then, you know, you get the eventual, you know, cooperation over Ultra, mm-hmm. you know, to a lesser extent, you know, magic uh, in the sense of, you know, the, the Navy's slightly more tight-lipped and, and GCHQ's working much more with the Army, you know, on the German problem. You know, and the FBI eventually gets, you know, kind of some access into that as well, because, you know, of course, you know, what what are the British using to, you know, confirm the bona fides and, and control of their double agents? Mm. Ultra. Yeah. And and the, the Bureau is trying to, you know, both, you know, work in part with some of these double agents and with the Brits, as well as run some of their own off of, you know, out of the United States. So it all got ties together. That doesn't even get into the the uh, radio operations the bureau starts setting up because they set up a radio station for uh, Duquesne in um, oh you know, tell us about this I love this story yeah let's talk about the Duquesne ring I mean this sure. is a big win for you guys I think and it's a super interesting story uh, a guy named um, Zebold <laughs> is uh, you know basically kind of forcefully recruited by the the Abwehr. In Germany, he was a U.S. national who was over in Nazi Germany. Uh, you know, basically gets a little um, metaphorical arm twisting. Uh, Yo, you want to go back to the United? Sure. Why don't you help us out? When the Gestapo says that, you know, it's an invitation. Maybe it's an offer you can't refuse. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's something like that. And, you know, basically what he did was kind of agree without telling him that he disagreed and turning himself in, you know, to U.S. Uh, State Department officials who tell the FBI. And when he, he comes over, what the FBI does is, you know, starts to mine you know, the information he was given about his contacts and they set him up in an office in, in New York where he can meet with these. Zebold is supposed to be basically the, the, the central case officer for a bunch of spies in, in the United States, you know, Fritz Duquesne and a number of others, and they'll bring him the intelligence. He will set up a radio operation to, you know, he'll put the, the intelligence into to encrypted form and send it off to, to Germany. And so the FBI actually sets up and runs the radio station. And so you know, begins to learn quite a bit about this. And, you know, eventually in the, the summer of 1941, they, um, you know, decide that uh, this is over and we're going to now prosecute all of them and, and end up prosecuting, you know, about 31 German agents, you know, just before the Pearl Harbor attacks. And so, you know, in the sense that the big German spy ring in New York is is broken on the eve of the U.S. entering the war. But the Bureau has started to learn that, you know, all of this and what, what they eventually will pick up in the war, in part from British example, in part from, you know, learning on their own, is that actually what you want to do is keep those double agent operations going so you can learn what they're looking for, learn how they're getting it, learn, you know, the ins and outs of their networks and basically infiltrate it and control it. Yeah. You know, so so really, that would be mature counterintelligence, not simply breaking up the spy ring after you've caught the spies and they've already sent out the secrets. 
Right. So playing it long rather than short. But but I mean, exactly. it's still like you, you guys, the Bureau actually builds a shortwave radio station on Long Island, I think, yep. as part of this. And and then actually has to, to basically send the signal to a uh, another stronger radio set up because, you know, the initial one that Zebol was supposed to set up wasn't going to be powerful enough to go, <laughs> go abroad. So, all right. So you were, I mean, it's, it's almost unthinkable that the FBI would, uh, you know, have an undercover informant who would help them set up uh, an allegedly encrypted communications platform that would be used by criminals for bad behavior and, and unbeknownst to them would actually be in the hands of law enforcement the whole time. I mean, no it's such certainly thing. not a lesson we've ever repeated. Right? No, it's I, <laughs> one can't think of anything like Trojan Shield or Anom or anything. <laughs> so, folks, there's there's historical analogs for a lot of cool the stuff past that is goes prologue, on, right? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. All right, I, I I love that case and I love it particularly in light of uh, more recent events. So, okay, and we had talked about Venona before and and sort of stuff coming out of the crypto work from the military and NSA. You guys took good advantage, I think, of a lot of stuff coming out of uh, Venona with the breaking of the so-called one-time, actually more than one-time crypto pads that the Russians were using. Well, it, it, we did. And of course, you know, in, in some ways, of course, it was, um, you know, a long, hard bureaucratic slog because as, as you noted earlier, there was an awful lot of competition in the whole crypto thing. And, yeah. you know, of course, the, the big thing was access to ultra and as soon as the war is over, of course, the, the Bureau loses that source. But all of a sudden, the issue of Soviet espionage is becoming a concern. Yeah. And, you know, of course, in, in the wake of, of the surrender of Japan in, in August 45, you know, we've got the defection of Igor Guzenko up in Canada. You know, he was a GRU code clerk who brought with him a bunch of, um, you know, code materials and indications of espionage, both in Canada and in the United States. You got Elizabeth Bentley coming in. And, you know, although Bentley's got a lot of actually good information about people, about what they had access to and everything else, and the story, you know, certainly seems to, to largely hold up on its face, there was no way to corroborate it. You know, Bentley came after Guzenko. And so as soon as Guzenko had defected, you know, the, the, the NKVD said, put all of its agents basically on, on ice and said, right. hey, hold off. And so, you know, the FBI goes looking at, at some of these leads and, and nobody's meeting with anybody. <laughs> so espionage is hard to prove unless you catch the person red handed oftentimes. So, uh -huh. you know, if nobody's actually spying, how do you then go and yeah. stop them from them. from spying? <laughs> it may be okay that they stop spying. <laughs> well, it, it's a good thing in the short term, but right. yeah, it's not a long term solution. Absolutely. Yeah. So the the thing is, of course, that you know throughout World War II, the U.S. government had been noticing aspects of Soviet espionage work, but in general, our policy was we are trying to keep the, the Soviet Union as actively against Hitler as possible. We're going to raise as few objections as we can. We're not going to, to make any, you know, big splashes, uh, you know, about this. And, you know, of course, ultimately, we didn't really know the, the extent of Soviet espionage at the time. Yeah. You know, that would come out later. But... You know, the Army, of course, had been widely intercepting any encrypted, encoded communications and looking to mine whatever it could to find active intelligence agents. And so, you know, certainly they, they knew the German radio circuits. You know, they had good success breaking the um, ultra machine encryption uh, schema. Yep. The Soviet messages, though, they, they couldn't break. And there were Army Signals Agency folks like Meredith Gardner who kind of tackled them from time to time and began working the problem. And as the war was becoming less of a, you know, we know Germany's going down at this point, they're shifting gears to, all right, what's the next threat? And, you know, some of that is focusing on these Soviet messages. And Meredith Gardner, of course, ends up having, you know, he and um, the, the people working with him have this breakthrough 
that identifies the fact that that the Soviets had reused some of their cryptographic materials, those one-time pads you mentioned. Yeah. And that gave them an in to breaking the encryption on those messages. Wow. And it's, I mean, it really is just a staggering trove of of data that comes through. Eventually, yes. They get, oh gosh, you know, the first big probably counterintelligence breakthrough, I think, that they get is when they decrypt part of a list of names of people who worked on the Manhattan Project. Yeah. And that was in 47. So, you know, it's a couple of years, you know, where the Bureau is trying to, you know, on the one hand, do their thing and follow up on all these leads from Guzanko and Bentley and looking at what's going on. And they're not getting a whole lot. 47 is when this really starts to change. They, they recruit a double agent in Los Angeles, hmm. who, who uh, his name was Boris Moros, and, and they turn him and, and, you know, he's, he ends up not being all that significant, but, you know, at least it was a change, you yeah. know, from, from what they've been doing. And then, you know, of course, you know, Meredith Gardner, as I said, has this break and the next year, a agent named Bob Lamphere uh, learns about some of this material that Gardner had started to produce and finds it interesting and thinks, Hey, you know, I think the Bureau can make use of this. Can I go talk to these guys? Yeah. And so, so it's in, in, um, you know, 1948 that, that special agent Lanfear is now, he's been working um, counterintelligence at headquarters. Now he'd been a agent up in New York through the war and, and was transferred back kind of as the, the next rung in the, the journey to, to bureau um, leadership comes back as a desk supervisor and, and says, you know, Hey, uh, you know, I'd like to pursue this. So he goes over to Arlington hall mm-hmm. and he and Meredith Gardner set up a, um, you know, this exchange of information. Yeah. I mean, that is not, not as easy as it sounds, I presume, because well, no. of all the territoriality at that time. He must have had a winning personality. <laughs> well, there's that. You also, um, you know, you get all the suspicions. Well, why do you want to know this? And, yeah. you know, well, we've kind of conflicted over this in the past. And you cops always, you know, make this stuff public eventually. And that's a problem. <laughs> and so we really don't want exactly. to talk to you. <laughs> On the other hand, basically, Lamphere says, look. Give me something you got, and I'm going to go back to the Bureau. I'm going to show, you know, basically take what you've got and combine it with what we've got, and I will show you you what we can produce. And so they start this collaboration where, you know, they're setting up a a feedback loop. You know, Lamphere's stuff helps Gardner, you know, break into more of the message. Gardner's message allows Lamphere to go back and combine it with the Bureau's information, and of very quickly actually start identifying spies. Yeah. You know, the, the relationship really formally starts in October of 48 in December, Gardner hands him, you know, this note about an agent named Seema who was transferred from, was a young woman who was transferred from one part of the department of justice to another part on a specific date. So people go to complete battles. St- I mean, when you hear you've Absolutely. got a mole inside DOJ you know, people get up on their hind legs and pay attention, right? Like that's... Well, and that's, yeah, basically Lamphere comes back with that info and says, um, you know, to, to a DOJ official, can we figure out who this is? And he says, yeah, it's Judith Copeland. And <laughs> right. she's still working here and she has access to classified FBI material. Oh my Lord. Yeah. And so, yeah, Copeland gets, you know, obviously the, the full treatment. Mm-hmm. you know, uh, physical surveillance, uh, electronic surveillance, you know, they, they start going, you know, through, through her past and anything that's known about her. And they realize that, you know, they have to, you know, they first kind of DOJ gets her away from classified material for a time, but then they realize, well, if we're going to catch her as a spy, if we're going to prove it, we've got to catch her red handed. And so they, they set her up with a, uh, a kind of a, a classified document um, dangle mm-hmm. that they know she'll grab. And she does runs up to New York to meet with her, her handler. And um, you know, the Bureau follows her, you know, through lower Manhattan there as, as they both go on their dry cleaning run for about two and a half hours, just kind of walking around, you know, enter this store, leave that store, you know, and, and it, tremendous courtroom uh, graphic exhibit. 
you know, showing the, the paths and then, you know, basically arrest him in a bar. Huh. And then things become interesting legally. <laughs> yeah, well, it, it as I recall, it ends up in a decision of no less than learned hand. Eventually on the appeal, yes. I yeah. First, she's convicted both in, in Manhattan and D.C. Uh-huh. In the D.C. trial, her, her attorney actually ends up being able through discovery to get access to the original FBI material that the fake classified document was based on. And he starts reading the stuff into the trial record. And it's, you know, well, FBI files in those days were basically, you know, kind of vacuum cleaners. You know, you had everything, Mm. you know, gossip, you know, news clippings and, you know, actionable material. And so this was incredibly embarrassing. Hoover doesn't want this to go on any further. They're basically presenting the case in court without any reference whatsoever to the Venona breakthrough. Because the army yep. is dead. This is not going public. And by the way, this is pre-SIPA. So some of this is a little harder Absolutely. to manage than it would be today. Well, and, you know, this is this will not be degraded from top secret until 1995. Yeah. Right. And so it is not going into court. And so what ends up happening is Copland's D.C. attorney is able to create the presumption, and everybody kind of figures, well, it's true, that the FBI got onto Copland in the first place because of a wiretap. Mm. Wow. And so, you know, as you mentioned, Learned Hand, her hand says that, you know, basically there was ample reason to think that the meetings they were having, that was Copland and her handler, um, Mm -hmm. you know, were a venture to to deliver information prejudicial to national security. But (laughs) if you can't show us why you went after her, (laughs) you're in trouble. We're assuming poison fruit. Yeah, right, right. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Please share the Lawfare Podcast and give us a five-star review on iTunes. Go to thelawfarestore.com for brand new Lawfare pens, lanyards, t-shirts, and socks. The podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell, and your audio engineer is Ian Enright of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.